2: The Economist.
0: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, and I'm joined today by our environment correspondent, Miranda Johnson, and our science correspondent, Tim Cross. In this episode, we'll discuss a looming deadline ahead of December's climate talks in Paris and water on Mars and what that means. Uh, But first, Miranda, you've been... Endlessly talking about INDCs, all of these INDCs flowing in. Tell me, what are these things?
2: (laughs) So um, INDC stands for Intended Nationally Determined Contribution, which is a fancy way of saying uh, pledge. And these INDCs, these pledges, are what countries are offering up ahead of the next round of UN climate change negotiations in Paris basically the pledges say uh, what they're prepared to do to cut back on their greenhouse gas emissions and they're supposed to have them all in by October the 1st
0: so they've been flooding in and everybody's signing up to do what they think they're supposed to do and and everything's going to be fine, right?
2: Well, <laughs> is anything to do with climate change ever fine? At the moment, it looks like what has been put on the table in these pledges uh, is not enough to hold global warming to 2 Celsius, just 2 Celsius, which is kind of the de facto goal of climate change negotiations. That's,
0: uh, that's been the, the sort of the line for some time, and that's kind of slowly been becoming less and less plausible. Am I right?
2: Yes, it's quite an arbitrary target, some say that it essentially was kind of cherry-picked out of reports in the 1970s and it was kind of a convenient political goal to get down on paper. It's a goal, uh, well, a limit that countries in 2010 all agreed to respect Other groups actually want 1.5 Celsius of warming to be the maximum. But at the moment, a new study has come in and says that the pledges that are on offer ahead of Paris are likely only to limit warming to 3.5 Celsius. So other things essentially need to be done.
1: Sorry, if I can just jump in. Presumably, that also assumes that people will actually meet the pledges because talk is rather cheap in these things. And a lot of the sort of hot air that goes into the atmosphere seems oh. to come out of climate negotiations. See what you did there, Tim. <laughs> we, we've, we've had, um, you know, we've had lots of promises in the past that have been completely ignored as the countries have just sailed past them. I mean, do we think they might actually take these things seriously this time? There's no way to force them to do it, is there?
2: Well, so Paris is trying to establish a legal framework that will, in fact, set these targets uh, more in stone. You're absolutely right, though, with the Kyoto Protocol that was signed in 1997 countries joined it and then subsequently didn't ratify it. Uh, The United States, for example. Everyone may not manage to do what they've offered to do. And uh, many developing countries and poorer countries have offered to cut back in ways that are contingent upon certain levels of funding from richer countries.
0: Some of this, though, seems like it's been, I mean, we've had a very a simplified debate so everybody can understand the, the terms of the debate, the, the two degree limit and so on. And the, the overwhelming evil player in, in the drama has been carbon dioxide. But yes. but there's more than that that can be done if we, if we move the focus away from just that.
2: You could call it low-hanging fruit, but it's sort of low-hanging dirt in a way, if you think about it. Um, <laughs> the, there are short-lived climate pollutants, uh, things like methane, things like black carbon, which we know as soot, that are incredibly warming. I think over a hundred-year period, uh, methane is 25 times more warming than carbon dioxide. Um, but they don't last very long. Carbon dioxide lingers around in the air, you know, for sort of 500 years, keeps insulating. Um, whereas these others disappear in a far, far, far shorter time period. So why
0: are they any danger at all? Why are they a problem?
2: So essentially, they are problematic in terms of air quality. Soot in particular is a problem in the Arctic because it inhibits the albedo effect when it lands on ice. Um, The albedo effect is essentially uh, the fact that ice can reflect solar radiation back um, and so helps cool the planet a little bit um, or at least, you know, warms less. Um, But it can't do that if it's all covered in soot. Exactly. So we're literally darkening the
1: poles of our planet right
2: now. Yeah. So that's another another reason to try and mitigate against methane, soot um, and hydrofluorocarbons.
0: (laughs) So some bit of hope then that there we can get rid of some of these pollutants, but it complicates a an already complicated picture with carbon. Let me wind back a little bit and ask you ahead of these these Paris talks. Do you hold out any particular hope as these things are coming in and people are talking about how much good it's actually going to do? What what do you think?
2: Absolutely, I, I do hold out hope. I think that countries such as America and China seem to be engaging uh, with the political process more than they have been. We're not going to see a quick fix. We're not going to wake up on you know, roughly the 15th of December and and the world will be saved. But there will be some kind of agreement um, in Paris that will be cobbled together from these pledges, perhaps one that is essentially the lowest common denominator deal, but some deal is is better than no deal. And we will certainly see something.
0: Right. Well, thanks for that, uh, Miranda. And Tim, over to you. We've been talking about Burning through all of our resources here on Earth. What about resources on Mars? There's a story again this week about water on Mars, but I feel like maybe I've heard this story
1: before. We kind of knew there was water there, right? Well, so, yeah, we have heard hints of this before. Uh, there's a, we know there's a small amount of water there. There's ice, um, frozen water beneath the surface in various places. What we've been wondering about for quite a long time and not really had any evidence for either way until quite recently is whether there's ever any liquid water on Mars, water that actually flows. So this is probably where you've, you, you think you've heard all these things before because in the last few years, the evidence has sort of been growing. So... Um, People using uh, cameras or orbiting spaceships have found these dark streaks on the side of crater walls that are there in the summer and not there in the winter. And for all the world, they look like little bits of flowing water that appear in the summer, disappear in the winter, and just sort of trickle down the sides of these craters.
0: And leave some sort of deposit behind. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: so this week, there's more evidence in in favor of that. How's that been found
1: out? So, again, using this the, the orbiting cameras on a spacecraft called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which does sort of what it says on the tin. Very ugly in. named. And with that, you can do something quite cool called spectroscopy, where you look at the light that's reflected from the surface. And when you break it out into a spectrum, you'll see lots of little black lines. And each of those black lines corresponds to a chemical substance. So if you know what to look for, you can just take an ordinary picture and work out what chemicals you're looking at on the surface of, of Mars. They haven't found water as such, but they found a bunch of chemicals and minerals that only form in the presence of water, Where exactly where these streaks are. So in the paper, they're being sort of very proper and scientific, and uh, they're saying, well, we haven't discovered water as such. We've just discovered indirect evidence of water. And then in the big NASA press conference on Monday, they're quite happy to go, we've discovered water on Mars.
0: But just, just for clarity, this is as good... Uh, evidence as we have yet seen are likely to
1: see yeah i mean you're very unlikely to ever see the actual water itself with with the instruments we've got at the moment they're just not really up to the job but this is pretty strong indirect evidence i mean if if this wasn't water if something else was causing this i mean that would be rewrite some chemistry rules exactly yeah yeah. so there is it seems pretty definitive evidence now of liquid water so there
0: there is the inevitable onward question right because water is a certainly necessary condition if not sufficient for for can i say can i say life
1: well, as you say, as far as we know, water is the nearest thing we can think of to an essential for life. And you can break out the te- chemistry textbooks and you can figure out all sorts of, well, you can figure out a few plausible biochemistries that don't use water. But you know, if you want to do the kind of complicated chemistry that we call life, water seems the best medium to do it in. So it's a boost, I would say. The question is, how big a
2: boost but on Earth, there are creatures that thrive in such challenging environments. Is, is that right?
1: There are, and that's another reason to, to not write off the possibility completely. So, yeah, there are these critters called extremophiles, and they live on Earth in like hot volcanic springs, in freezing cold water, in really salty conditions. They can endure huge doses of radiation. They're just you know, much, much tougher than we thought it was possible for life to be. You could just about build a scenario in which you know, early Mars, which is wet and warm, Life evolved, and then as the planet gradually dried out um, and the water went away, you know, some particularly hardy bacteria maybe have been sort of clinging on. Yeah, but that's the the
0: point, I guess, is we're not talking about complex life; we're talking about unicellular. Yeah, we're not talking about
1: sort of six-legged Martian elephants or anything. We're talking about (sighs) see. (laughs) I've
0: I've been hoping the Hollywood element would really come to the fore this week. Perhaps not. Um, But look, whatever it is that might be there, we've got trundling little rovers and robots there that can go check this out, right? Why don't we just go have a proper look for it?
1: Yeah, so there are two rovers uh, on Mars at the moment, one called Opportunity and one called Curiosity. And as you say, there's nothing in principle, to stop us driving one over to uh, somewhere where we can see these streaks and having a look. But there is a question, interestingly, of space rules. So when the planetary exploration programme first got going, a lot of people began to worry about potentially, you know, contaminating the things we were looking at with life from Earth. And the same extremophiles that Miranda mentioned um, have made that a much worse problem because we now know, you know, it's plausible that you know when you're building your rover in a lab in California somewhere, some bacteria get on it. You know, may- they could maybe survive the trip from Earth to Mars, survive re-entry, and be hanging around on the rover. On the one hand, you might get a false positive. You know, you might say, "Hey, we found bacteria on Mars," and then it turns out on closer analysis, they're just boring Earth bacteria that hitched a ride with with your rover. The Curiosity rover, which is the one we'd we'd want to send because it's the-, the bigger and more capable of the two, um, that was built in a quite a sterile environment but probably not sterile enough so people are trying to just trying to decide right now well you know can we bend the rules is this worth sending it over to have a look
2: slightly slightly silly question this new film uh, the Martian with Matt Damon's just come out i think it's Ridley Scott has directed that in light of have
0: what, you been paid no no,
2: no.
1: <laughs> other films are available
0: <laughs>
2: um, in light of what we've learned this week is there anything that you know, I, I appreciate that the, the, the film's based on a book. Is there is there anything that might be in it that that now looks silly? I don't
1: think so. I mean, the, the thing to remember is, you know, we, we're talking about tiny bubbles of very briny, salty water that's full of chemicals on a planet that has a tiny, thin atmosphere whose surface is blasted by radiation all the time. So it's, it's probably not going to make life any easier for Mark Watney, who's the hero of the film. I mean, it, you know, but the really interesting thing about this is, is, you know, for a while, people were quite pessimistic about the possibility of finding life anywhere. I mean, we, we sent probes to Mars in the 70s, and most people agreed that they came back empty-handed. But just lately, we're now talking about there are these moons of Jupiter and Saturn that have subsurface oceans. Um, and then this liquid water result that we've, you know, the evidence has, has been mounting over the past few years. That makes Mars look more likely than it has in a long time. So... If you're an alien hunter, these are, these are pretty good times, I think.
0: Giving a bit more hope to the alien hunters. We love to do that on Babbage. Um, thanks for that, Tim, and thanks also, Miranda. That's all we have time for this episode, though. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
2: The Economist.
1: Selling a little or a lot?